tonight is, I have sinned. As I read through my Bible, I came across that phrase again and again, and so I began to do some research and look up all the times it occurs. It actually occurs 22 times in the Bible, and it involves 10 different individuals, one of whom is fictitious, but the other nine are actually real people who live and confess, I have sinned. And we're going to look at four scenarios tonight where that phrase occurs. And in each of these scenarios, we're going to notice that sin is acknowledged, openly, freely admitted. However, I want you to understand that a mere acknowledgement of sin in and of itself is of no value. John said, if we say that we have no sin... We are liars, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can acknowledge that, yes, I'm a sinner, but if I don't do anything about it, if I continue to live the way I've always lived, you know, guys in prison, well, yeah, I've sinned, I committed a crime, but are you sorry? Well, I'm not sorry I committed it, I'm just sorry I was dumb enough to get caught. And now face the consequences. So, folks, and we're going to see this as we go through these four scenarios, just simply admitting sin is a step in the right direction, but in itself is not is not of any value. So I'm going to begin reading of John chapter 8 and verse 3. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had sent her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Sounds like what's going on in D.C., doesn't it? But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go, and here's the key phrase, and sin no more. Turn back now, if you will, to Exodus chapter 9 as we begin the first of these four scenarios. Here is a woman actually taken in the very act of adultery. And that's pretty serious stuff, folks. And Moses said that they should stone her. Jesus said, Hey, you want to stone her? Okay, fine. That's, that's legal. That's right. But you guys, I can almost imagine pointing the finger like an evangelist said, he that is without sin among you guys, you be the first one to throw a stone at me. Hey, now no, start writing. Boy, that, that struck them right, right in the, in the middle of their conscience. In Exodus chapter 9, we have the record here, almost a story. 
I'm trying to avoid the use of the term Bible stories. Um, I know we all know what we mean by that, but we're living in such a, a perverted world today where a Bible story is like Grandpa tells a story about when he was a kid, you know? And it's like there's no authority. They're just stories. Well, these are not stories. These are records of people that actually lived, and their actions and their attitudes and their words have been recorded as though it were done by a court stenographer. In Exodus chapter 9, we have the record here of Pharaoh, whom I have subtitled a stubborn sinner. In Exodus chapter 9, uh, six of the plagues have already taken place. And notice, if you will, please, in verse 27. And Pharaoh said, and called, this is after the hail and the fire mingled with hail, very grievous came down in verse 24 and 5. And only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. And Pharaoh said, and called for Moses and Aaron, and said unto them, I have sinned this time. What about the other times? The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Let me ask you a question. Is that true? Was that a true statement? Yes. Uh, he says, I've sinned. That's true. The Lord is righteous. Anything he does is right. That's true. Here you have an ungodly, wicked sinner acknowledging biblical truths. But it didn't mean much to him. He acknowledges that both he and his people are wicked, but acknowledging that sin didn't do a whole lot. We notice his attitude then in verse 27. He acknowledges his sin. His action, notice verse 30 and 34. Uh, Moses said in verse 29, As soon as I am going out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know that how that the earth is the Lord's. But as for thee and thy servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. And so the Bible says that the flax and barley, uh, and the wheat were not grown up yet, but the barley was, 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 was messed up. And Moses, verse 33, went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread upon his hands unto the Lord, and the thunders and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured upon the earth. Now those verse 34 here, uh, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Moses said, listen, I know, uh, this, is, this is like foxhole religion. Oh God, just get me out of the foxhole, and I'll serve you. Yeah, and so God gets rid of the foxhole, they go live like the devil for the rest of their life. I wonder why they don't have the blessing of God. So his action is one of continuing to sin, acknowledging that the way he has lived, Acknowledging that his attitude toward God and, and God's people is absolute sin. He is a yes, that's right, I'm a sinner, we're wicked. But he continues on once the pressures take it off. Over to chapter 10. And notice, if you will, um, verse 24, Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be saved. Pharaoh always tried to get Moses to compromise and and either just the men go or don't go too far or leave your flocks and herds here. And uh, Moses said, no, we're, we're taking everything. And notice in verse 27, the Bible says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Now it's interesting 
Six times in, in, in this record of Pharaoh here, six times the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. This is one of three times in addition to those six where the Bible says that God hardened the Pharaoh's heart. It's not that God just arbitrarily did this. It's as though God is saying, okay, Mr. Pharaoh, you want to live like this? You want to act like this? Okay, I'm going to make it even harder for you to do what's right. Notice his anger in verses 28 and 29. Pharaoh said unto Moses, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for the day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. So he continues on his sin, even threatening to kill God's men. Twice Pharaoh acknowledged that he was a sinner. Twice he acknowledged that what he was doing was wrong. I have sinned. And yet in his stubbornness and his wickedness, he continued to sin all the more. Folks, I want to tell you something. It's a, it's a tragedy when people come to a place in their life where they realize what they have done is wrong, but where they won't turn from it. I remember sitting 43 years ago in West Virginia on the back porch of a relative of mine who was living in wicked immorality and sin and drugs and sex and drunkenness and, and alcohol and pornography. It was a it was wicked. I sat there and I shared with this relative of mine the, the, the lifestyle that and I tried to witness to her and she claimed that she was saved. And I said, Well, there's no there's absolutely no evidence of that. If I'm to examine the fruit, the fruit I'm examining doesn't look like it's from a good tree to me. And so I, I challenge her that if you are saved, you are you are snubbing your nose at God Almighty. You are you are almost daring God to enter and intervene in your life. And that gal sat there in the back porch of that mobile home, weeping, sobbing, <clears throat> acknowledging. Her lifestyle was wicked, unbiblical, and ungodly. But she would not change. She's now husband number four. And I can't tell you the heartache that's coming to her life. One day she told me, she said, you know, my daughter's not like your kids. Your kids are different than mine. I said, no, they're not. My girls are sinners like anybody else. But the difference is that we have tried. We're not the perfect parents. God knows that. Our girls know that. We know that. But we try by the grace of God to raise our children with the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and in church and under a biblical influence. And she did not. Her daughter knows how many different guys have come over and spend in the night. You're not high enough for a 10 or 12-year-old. I said, your daughter is what you have taught her to be. I didn't fly real well, but it's, you know, sometimes you just have to face people up. And here's a gal who knew what she was wrong, wouldn't do anything about it. And 40 years later, her life is a sad, sad harvest time. It's a bitter, bitter harvest time. The Bible says what you sow, you reap. And I know people say, well, that can cause crop failure. That's the exception, and a rare exception, not the rule. The rule is, if you plant an apple tree, you're not going to pick pears. If you plant wheat, you're not going to pick corn. Now that's simply a law of nature. What you sow, you reap. And Paul says, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh corruption. And I've seen that happen again and again over the years. Pharaoh then 
is the stubborn sinner. Turn now to the New Testament, please, the book of Matthew, chapter 27. And let's look at a second scenario. Judas, the sorrowful sinner. Matthew 27, verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. I'll notice the next couple of verses. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, notice, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, there's our phrase, in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. Here we have Judas, a sorrowful sinner. His attitude in verse 3 is one of sorrow. He repented. He had a change of attitude regarding his actions. But listen, folks, simply being sorrowful, simply being sorry and having a change of attitude regarding your actions on the first half of repentance. Listen, real repentance involves not only acknowledging your sin, but turning away from your sin and turning to God. Judas didn't do that. He was sorry for what he had done, knowing that what he had done was wrong. He said, I have sinned. Notice his actions. In verse 3, he confessed. Unfortunately, he made his confession where hundreds of millions of people make the confession today and die of their sins and go to hell. He confessed his sins to the priest, the high priest, probable to the Pope today. So something on Facebook today says, don't confess your sins to a man in a box. He can't forgive your sins. Only God can. That's why when Jesus was, was in the room and the four guys brought a friend, sick of the palsy, lowered him down through the roof, and, and Jesus saw their faith, by the way, not his faith, saw their faith. He said to the sick of the palsy, my sins be forgiven me. And of course, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the high priests, they got all said, who can forgive sins but God? This man's a blessing. No, he was God. He was forgiving sin, and to prove it, he healed the man in front of their eyes. And they just hated him the more for that. Judas here confesses his sin. I have sinned. He cast down the money. He gave it back. I don't want the money. The problem was it was too late. The job, the dastardly deed was already done. And he went out, verse 5, and he hung himself in one of the few cases where a guy goes out and commits suicide recorded in the Bible. The problem is there was no brokenness over his sin. He acknowledged his sin. He even tried to undo it in the flesh. But folks, he died, committed suicide, no brokenness over sin. There is merely an intellectual and an emotional sorrow, sort of what we would call a human sorrow, not a godly sorrow. When the Bible speaks in 2 Corinthians 7.10 about a godly sorrow, it's the kind of a sorrow that's, that's recognizing I was wrong to even commit the act in the first place. If I could do it, I would undo it right now and make it right. Judas didn't do that. He went to the priest. He confessed to the priest. He tried to give back the money. But you know, folks, if Judas had climbed off of this hill and stood there at the foot of the cross and never even looked up and confessed to Jesus, he'd have been saved. Jesus said, him to come to me. I'll no wise cast out. But Judas didn't go. He went away and hung himself. Judas, I described him as the sorrowful sinner. 
Again, there are people in prison, and I've done a fair amount of work in prison with this one inmate I've been working with for 41 years now in a maximum security prison. And they're all, they're all, they're all stubborn. They're all, they're all, yeah, I committed a crime. They're sorry. What are they sorry for? Sorry they get caught. Sorry they were so stupid. Sorry they have to face the consequences. <clears throat> but a few of them are sorry that they committed the act in the first place. We're going to the Gospel of Luke now for scenario number three. Luke chapter 15. And this is the one character, as you well know, the prodigal son, that is fictitious. And here I've, I've subtitled this fellow as the prodigal, uh, the prodigal son, a sinner who was saved. We notice his attitude. He's a young guy born, born into, into wealth. His dad was obviously a very, very rich man. And one day this kid had a string, string of rebellion. said, Dad, I'm tired of living here at home. I'm tired of living under your roof, under your rules and regulations. Give me my half of the inheritance and let me go. The dad didn't have to legally do that. Now, I know it's I know it's a parable, Jesus said. But even when you look at it in the historical context, the dad was not obligated until he was dead to divide the inheritance. Or to have the inheritance that he couldn't divide his dead. But while he's living, he had no obligation to do that, but he did. And the Bible tells us that the son took all, went out, and wasted his substance with riotous living. It is interesting when you do a study and, and look at the lives of some of these famous athletes. I'm not going to mention any names. Um, and I'm not necessarily thinking of the guy you think I'm thinking of, although I'm, he's part of my thought process, but it's only one. These guys are making millions and millions of dollars a year, and many of them, by the time they hit 50 years of age, are bankrupt or broke. Because they waste their substance and riotous living. Let me tell you this, folks. You don't have to agree with this. Every athlete is overpaid. I don't buy products that have athletes' pictures on them. I know the money's going there. Alright, notice this guy's attitude that he goes away, <clears throat> joins himself to a citizen. By the way, verse 14, he spent all, there arose a mighty famine, and he began to be in one. The first time in this guy's life, he ever knows what it is to be in one. So he went down to the unemployment office, <laughs> bringing this up to modern, modern times, right? He goes down to the unemployment office, and the only job he can get is on a pig farm feeding swine. Now, understand, Jesus was a Jew ministering to Jewish people, and this is a Jewish story in a Jewish context. You understand that? So there's nothing more lowly or despicable for a Jew to do than have anything to do with pigs. They didn't eat BLTs. They didn't have the, the McDonald's, uh, what do they call it, the ham, egg, and, and egg breakfast, the sandwich, you know. They didn't have a roast like a ham and Virginia bacon. Because they had nothing to do with pigs. They're unclean, filthy animals. And they are filthy animals. <clears throat> but so are chickens. Uh, we live in Greenville, and just not far from where we live, there's a chicken Auschwitz. <laughs> Except they don't gas it, they just guillotine them. They cut their heads off. And, and these truckloads, there's probably five or six truckloads of chickens, thousands of every Folks, they're the filthiest looking birds I've ever seen. They don't even look nice when they're finally dressed. 
or underestimated when you look at it. Anyway, this guy goes into the fields to feed pigs. And look at verse 16. He, he was so hungry, the Bible says he was fain had filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave him. Now, you get, you get the picture here? Here's a guy just dumping over a bushel basket of, pig, of corn husks to the pigs, and the pigs are all grabbing for him, and he's sitting there on the fence post just looking at it, and he's so hungry, he wishes he could reach down and grab a corn, a, 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 an ear of corn, and wipe the manure and the mud off and put it in his mouth to chew on it. But he wasn't allowed to do it. Now look at verses 17 and 18, and notice his attitude. When he came to himself, ah, good thing he came to himself. He said, and he's, he's kind of thinking to himself now, and he's rehearsing this little thing in his mind. How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? My father's servants are better off than I am, and I'm one of the heirs. I perish with hunger. <clears throat> And then notice what he said, I will arise. And I will go to my father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now there's a lot in that statement. I just want to highlight a couple of things here. Again, he acknowledges his sin. I have sinned. Is, he, is this I'm going to go back home to my dad, and this is what I'm going to say. He rehearses this speech. And I'm going to say, Dad, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Understand, those all sin is first and foremost against heaven. Even Pharaoh admitted that. I sinned against God. God is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Remember young Joseph in, in Potiphar's house, when Potiphar's beautiful young wife, wife tried to seduce him and lie about him? And he said, How can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. But Joseph would have been sinning against against Potiphar, betraying his trust. He had been sinning against himself and against Potiphar's wife, but most of all, he was sinning against God. I wish we could get that in context. I wish we could somehow get that, that principle settled in our own minds. When we sin, we're first of all sinning against God. Now, other people may be involved, and we need to go with them to them and make it right. So he says, I've sinned against heaven before thee, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Is that, is that not true? Yes? Amen? Who of us is worthy to be called son of God? So he has a good attitude. But you know what, folks? If he'd have sat there by that pig pen thinking all this stuff, as, as important as it is, it would have meant absolutely nothing He'd have died a beggar. He'd have died broke. Why? Because, again, the attitude, important as it is, is not sufficient in and of itself. To acknowledge one's plight is important, but it doesn't deal with the plight. Notice his action in verses 20 and 21. And he arose and came to his father. He got off of his off the seat there, got off the fence post, and he started the journey home. And when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and, neck and kissed him. Can you imagine that scene? Oh, the father's hugging the son and kissing him and hugging him and kissing him and so glad to see him. 
And the son kind of pushes his dad and says, Dad, I've got something to say. I've sinned against heaven and, the, and, and in thy sight. And I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. What else was he going to say? Make is one of the higher servants. He never gets it out. I think he planned to, but his dad interrupts him. And he said to the servants, bring forth the best room, put it all in. And you know the rest of the story, how the father accepted the son on the basis of his confession of sin and the fact that he came home. Somewhere I put this way, wandered far away from home, without coming home. I wonder, you will often use that, that song for, for uh, unsaved people. But I'll tell you, that song is apropos for God's people as well, who stray. I'm tired of straying and wandering, Lord. Are you tired of that sin? Are you tired of that life? Not just perhaps as an ugly, as a child of God, as a Christian. Are you tired of living in the world and reaping the harvest that the world has to offer, which is not pleasant? Time to go home. So here the sinner say, one final scenario, please. Turn to turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter thirteen. I'm sorry, chapter twelve. While you're turning, I want to also have some verses in Psalm 51. 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. David has committed a horrible series of crimes and sins. <coughs> Lusting, looking, uh, committing adultery, lying, trying to cover up, conspiracy. And finally, signing, signing Uriah's death warrant, and along with Uriah, other innocent men died because they were in a place they should not have been, but placed there by Job at David's command in order to cover his tracks, in order to cover his sin. He thought nobody knows about it now, but Joab and me. Didn't matter if Joab had died. And so, after this thing, is, it is, uh, the Bible says the thing that he had done displeased the Lord in chapter 12. The old prophet Nathan came to David. Tells him a story about a rich man had lots of herds and foxes, and, and his neighbor was a poor man, had only one little female lamb. It was like a daughter to him, and stayed in the house with him. And the rich man had a guest come by, and was, as was the custom to provide a meal. Instead of taking one of his flock, he wouldn't miss. He went to the poor man's house and took the little pet and slew it and served it to his guest. And David flew into a rage and said, That man's going to die. Old Nathan really got bold then. Again, he's evangelistic, right? I can just see him putting out that bony index where he says, Thou art the man. You condemn him to die? You've done the same thing in the death of Uriah. Now, folks, David could have had Nathan taken out and executed. But he didn't. He was broken over his sin. And uh, and of course, Nathan says, You did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel, said the Lord. And David said unto Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned. Notice against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that shall be born unto thee shall surely die. By the way, Please make no mistake about it. God sometimes takes a loved one to death as a punishment for your sin. 
One person really got angry with me about this. Look right here. That baby died. Why? Because of David's sin. God took the child ahead. Little children like this, when they when they die, they're with the Lord. David even acknowledged that later on. So go down and if you will please to Psalm 51. And notice in verse 4 his sin. In verse 4, he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness or done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. In verse 3, notice his sorrow. In verse 3, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. In Psalm 38, he said, my, uh, my sin is ever before me. I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. Psalm 51, verse 17, notice his sacrifice. In verse 17, uh, a, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. You know, one of our problems in America today, in the church of America, we don't have a brokenness over sin. We sin and we just kind of brush off, well, like one of the televangelists, well, I made some mistakes. No, it was sin. Lied, stole, tried to cover up, folks. I didn't make some bad judgments. I sinned. That instance. Notice Psalm 51, verse 1, his supplication. Verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, <coughs> blot out my transgressions. And his satisfaction and forgiveness. Well, Psalm 32, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and his spirit there is no guile. A godly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Judas had a sorrow of the world and committed suicide and went to heaven. So David here, I've subtitled this as a salvaged saint, a saint of God who went off into horrible sin, but who by God's grace got right with God, confessed his sin, and he had to pay a terrible price because the Bible says the sword, God said the sword will never depart. You did this thing secretly, I'm going to do it openly, and there's going to be no rest in your household until this is all over. Folks, true repentance begins... And I emphasize the word begins with a change in attitude. But if it's real biblical repentance, it necessarily leads to and results in a change in action regarding sin. There have been some professors out of Dallas Seminary in Texas that say, well, repentance is, is just a change of attitude. It's a mental attitude. Uh, it has nothing to do with any, any lifestyle. Folks, I could not disagree more. If there's no change in your action regarding sin, guess what? That's because there's never been a change in attitude. If I really hate and despise my sin by God's grace, I'm going to ask Him for victory over it. I'm not going to continue to do the same dumb thing over and over and over again. If I'm really sorry, that doesn't mean we'll not stumble into sin or commit it again, but when we do, our hearts are going to be broken over 
Against thee and thee only have I sinned, and thou must look at this in thy son. And then regarding salvation and repentance, Jesus said, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. My friend, without repentance, there's no regeneration. Without a godly sorrow for sin, there's no salvation. Without Holy Spirit conviction, there's no conversion. But all of that is true also in the life of the child of God who's fallen into sin. We need to turn from our wicked ways and come home. No repentance for the unsaved means no regeneration. No repentance for the saved person means no restoration. You see, because we sin, we don't stop being a child of God. But the fellowship's broken. Let me tell you a true story. It happened when I was probably about 12 years old. As I say, old enough to know better than to them to care. How old are you? Yeah. You're 10? How many times have you been 10? Just <laughs> Well, I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. And uh, I got into an argument with my mother. Now, I understand my mother turned 40 shortly after I was born. So by the time I was born, she was already senile and dementia and, and, and all these things, right? And I got into an argument with my mom at, at the dining room table, and, and I went to hit her on the hand in anger. You did not strike my parents. If I hit my dad, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be picking myself off the wall. My dad was in the championship boxing and wrestling team in the United States Naval Academy class in 1929 when he said they had wooden ships and iron men. <laughs> As soon, folks, as soon as I, I the, the, the motions, I knew I was wrong. Now, I know you don't have any baseball teams here in Wisconsin, but you know what? If you're with baseball, uh, like we have the Phillies, you, you know the baseball team, don't you? It's right down to where? Madison? Milwaukee. All right. Sorry about that. I'm not used to being out in the Midwest. Uh, you know there's a thing called a check swing? Where the batter sees a ball coming, he goes and uh, he tries, and, and if he stops at a certain point, that it's it's considered a, a, a ball or whatever. But if his bat goes past a certain point, it's considered a strike. Well, I tried a check swing, <laughs> but it didn't work. There was so much power and energy in the motion that it slowed down. But by the time it got to my mother's hand, it was just a little love tap, right? <laughs> my mother knew better than I did. It wasn't the fact that I just hit her gently. It's the fact I struck her at all. And she grabbed me, and I, being young and spry, got away from her. And then we started this, you know about this, little dance around the dining room table, you know, go this way, go this way. And finally I got close enough to the to the kitchen door. I ran out into the kitchen and out the kitchen door. And I can still hear my mother's voice follow me. Son, sooner or later I'm going to get you. And the later it is, the worse it's going to be. <laughs> but my mother's old and senile and she doesn't have any memory. She'll forget about all that by supper time. You know? That's how kids think. One day the kids grew up and realized how dumb we were as kids. That's yet ahead for you, sweetie. <laughs> And uh, so I just thought I'll just run out and play. And uh, then around supper time, I'll come back and surely mom won't make a big scene over supper. And then I'll run away again and I'll just keep doing that till I wear her down. That was me trying to raise mom. Folks, and by the way, kids are very successful at raising their parents that are doing that. 
was at a grocery store one time, the kids wailing around, thrashing and kicking. I said, man, you need, you need to take him back to the butcher shop. <laughs> and let him have it. Oh, the child abuse. No, you're the one who's child abusing. We're not dealing with this. Anyway, so I ran away. So around supper time, I got my sister to become complicit with this. She opened one of the basement windows. I slipped in. I tiptoed up the, the stairs from the basement to the to the kitchen area. And folks, I don't know how I did it, but I didn't even make a creaking noise. And the door was partly open. I just kind of looked around this way to see if the person was clear. But I was too dumb to look behind the door. Yeah. I stepped through, and my mother said, Touch it now, boy! She hung on for a dear life. She wasn't going to let go this time. She said, Son, I've got you. It's later, and you're going to get it. And I got it. <laughs> but then after I got it, you know what else I got? I got a hug from Mama saying she must have been disappointed. It was all over. We're back in fellowship. Now we can sit down and have a good meal together. Isn't that like a lot of Christians? They're afraid to come to church because they know their hearts not right with God and they're afraid God's going to deal with them in the service for the evangelist and the hard preaching. So he's just going to get on my case and I don't want to, I don't want to feel uncomfortable in church so I stay away from church. And, and listen, folks, we need to just do business with God, confess the sin, make it right with God, let God forgive it, let God give us a hug, tell us he loves us, and let's go back to that dinner again. We wandered far away from God. Now, Coming up. Let's go together, please, as we pray. I wonder tonight if God has spoken to your heart. And uh, as